Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guests today are Bonnie Buckner, MA, and Pamela Rutledge, MBA, PhD, co-founders of A Think Lab. We will discuss transmedia storytelling. Bonnie and Pam conduct workshops and projects about creativity, finding the company's story, transmedia storytelling, and the impact of new media on corporate culture and messaging. They have developed and teach transmedia marketing through storytelling, a new course for the UC Irving Extension. Bonnie and Pam are also on the faculty of Fielding Graduate University, where they teach media, psychology, cognitive psychology, and visual design, as well as political psychology, social media, and emerging technologies. They are based on the West Coast. Bonnie, Pam, welcome. Oh, well, thank you so much for having us. So let's start with a little bit more of a discussion, if you will, on what you mean by learning to see the world in a new way. Are we talking about new online technologies or is it something else? Well, let me start and then then Bonnie Kennedy, and this is Pam. When we say learning to see, one of the main features of of a transmedia world is that we have lots of ways to communicate. So a big factor in transmedia is learning to see the world with a larger palette. When you learn to see the world more holistically, it changes how you see everything. So all of the work we do is focused on helping an organization or a company or an individual be able to step aside from their normal blinder vision and see the world in a new way, solve problems in a new way, and get a new perspective and new empathy for the situation that they weren't seeing otherwise. Bonnie, do you want to add anything? Sure. You know, Marcel Proust is, is someone we have quoted on our website, and he said, you know, the real voyage of discovery is not in finding new lands, but in seeing the world with new eyes. And so, like Pam was saying... We're in a world today where there's rapidly shifting paradigms in business, in society, in our culture. And being able to um, excel today in in all areas of your life really requires being fluid with these changes. And fluidity comes from being able to slide easily from your sometimes narrow perspective to other perspectives uh, that can broaden that. So... What we do is, is teach different ways of stepping into different vantage points to encourage that kind of fluidity and responsiveness so that businesses can become much more flexible with all of the changes that are happening. If I understand correctly, you're saying it's not just about what new technologies have come about, but it's about the way that you look at things it's the vantage point that you're in or the way that you frame them. Is that right? It is. That, but it's, go ahead, Pam. Well, I was, the, the big, it's, a, it's about that whole vision because all of the technology matters, but it matters in a, mostly because it's changed our psychology. And I don't mean it's you know, made us all attention deficit. I'm not talking about that kind of thing. It's changed our expectations 
about very basic things about how the world works. So some of it is seeing this new culture of uh, authenticity, transparency, immediacy, the ability to connect across time and space. And some of it is the ability to step out and have empathy for a perspective that isn't yours. Because if you're going to connect with people authentically, you have to know what's driving them, what are their needs and their beliefs and their passions. It's also um, not only do companies need to understand, um, as Pam says, uh, what technology means from those perspectives, it's we're living in an age that we like to compare um, to the time when the printing press was invented. So at that time, there was a sudden mass literacy. Uh, you had an entire culture suddenly being able to, to read, and this caused great massive uh, shifts uh, in society, everything from the creation of a new uh, major denomination and a religion and to the breaking down of aristocracy and different principalities. And uh, the whole society at that time really restructured due to what individuals could now do. And today, we have two things happening. We have this mass access to information, and we also have the means to disseminate it on levels that have never been known before in history. So we can not only access information, and that includes um, information that before would have separated people out. You know, there's a specialist who knows law. It's called an attorney. Now, you know, I could right now download forms to start my own company. But it also is information that really pulls the curtain off the wizard. So if a company is not acting authentically, as Pam was talking about, it becomes known. And that um, disconnect is something that really separates the customer and drives them away. And the other thing um, is is the power of the individual voice. You know, one person can reach hundreds of thousands of people uh, with their message. And this makes for a very different individual, which means a very different customer um, psychologically. And that also influences culture and society. And that's why we, we feel that companies need to really be able to understand what these new psychologies are because it's a dramatically different world. You talked about having access to a lot of information that was not available in the past. That has also meant, of course, that the source of the information is not always trustworthy. Was that what you were referring to when you talked about I think you were talking about the Wizard of Oz, the uh, reference that you made. Is that right? I was. And it's not simply, um, I wasn't speaking simply to information not always being trustworthy. I was speaking to more a company's message. So if there's a marketing message that's inauthentic, that doesn't align with the company's stated mission in other places, or if there's a company, for example, that touts themselves. I know that there's a company, I won't name names, that had a product that they touted as being uh, completely organic and healthy. And it turns out that there's a lot of chemical products in that uh, product. And so that was found out and it, it evolved into a lawsuit. And so it's that kind of 
non um, coherence to what the company is is marketing themselves to be and what they actually are, today's consumer can find that out. And and that's a dramatic example. There are smaller examples where it doesn't lead to a lawsuit and things like that, but where the the consumer says, you know, this doesn't feel authentic. This, what you're telling me you are and the product that I'm having aren't really exactly the same thing. And so they go elsewhere. You're, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're stressing that it's very important for companies today, I don't know, more than ever before, but certainly as much as before, to be authentic. Is that right? Yeah, authentic and to understand the environment. We're in a place now where it's an entirely different communications model. The the old model, the mass media model, or call it the traditional model, was essentially one voice to many people. So the messages weren't personalized and they were distributed in mass, but they were also unidirectional. So they went from the source only to the people. They didn't cross channels and they didn't they didn't return. They weren't reciprocal. Now, because of the social web, because of networks, we have an entirely different means of communication. Everyone can connect with everyone else. There's a there's a, a, a game. Have you heard of uh, Six Degrees from Kevin Bacon? It's a it's a party game, and the idea is that you you try and connect actors through the actor Kevin Bacon, you know, who appeared in what movie. And that's a joke about an early study done on the internet with how many connections between people to to actually connect people who don't know each other. And that was six. And it's actually now about three worldwide because of the social web. And so what this means is that information travels differently. It travels very quickly. And from the source to the receiver is shortened dramatically. But that also for a marketer is very positive because the emotional uh, content stays intact if the messaging is done coherently. But if, as Bonnie was saying, it's not coherent, you get that message from a lot of ways. You can triangulate information. If I want to book a hotel, I can go to the hotel site and see what prices they have to offer and see how wonderful they say their place is. Then I can look on Orbitz and then I can look on TripAdvisor and I can read the um, recommendations and I can see whether or not what they say is consistent with the experiences that people have had. And not only that, I can look for recommendations of people that have that are most like me or most like my concerns. If I have little children, I'm going to look for recommendations from people with similar circumstances. So I'm getting, I'm able to confirm information in many places that will have some sense of reliability to me because I'm not beholden or there to that person who's having a review. They're not selling me something. So this whole shift really changes what a company needs to do and a consumer's ability to navigate in that landscape. 
in other words, you can't afford as a company to have a marketing disconnect that you might have been able to get away with in the past. You can't afford to do that anymore because people have much better and much faster access to that information. Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. If you lie, you'll get busted, basically. When, and sometimes it's not even about lying. Sometimes you'll see a company that has different marketing messages for different market segments. Right. Um, I've seen this with media also. I think of one uh, newspaper that would have one headline in English and one headline in Spanish because they had different market segments and they thought that they were going to respond differently to the information. Right. And it was, they do it that in movies too. <laughs> Go ahead, Bonnie. They do that in the, in the movie business all the time, right? They make a trailer for a movie that highlights the romantic aspect of it, and then they make a trailer for the movie that's all cars and, and car chases and guns and, you know, the adrenaline. <laughs> for two it, markets. <laughs> exactly. But what I'm hearing you say now is if they're, if they're compatible or complementary to each other, it's okay, but if you have a disconnect in the message, that's not going to work because now everyone has access to the information. Absolutely. Right. What is transmedia storytelling? Well, let, let us start by breaking it down a little bit. We'll talk about sort of what is, what, how we define transmedia, what matters about story, and then we'll be able to take that and apply it to marketing and branding in a way that will be useful for, for the listeners. Transmedia simply means using a lot of different media channels. The distinct thing about transmedia is, first of all, like we mentioned earlier, if you start thinking about your message across all of these media channels, you have to think broadly and holistically to have that coherence. And second, the transmedia environment is, is more using it not to repurpose a single message, but using it to construct a larger message or a story that where you can take parts of it and have it unfold in different media over time to sustain and enrich that message experience. So whether or not you're using comic books, Radio ads, movies, video games, um, or television commercials or a novel, you can use all of these things based upon your message and what fits your audience to really flesh out an experience that creates a relationship rather than just a message. And I think Bonnie's got a, a simple example here that will make that clearer. Yeah, so just to kind of... Um illustrate this in a fun way. You can think about the story of the three little pigs. And um, that story will start with an anchoring medium, which is the story. It's in book form, um, which is how you would tell a basic story. But then to flesh that out and to allow for multiple entry points for other people who have their interests and, and would relate to different facts of the story, maybe the wolf has a website where we can learn from him with his mathematics schematics of the impact of wind and velocity and you know straw sticks and bricks is we would find maps of the turnip field and, and the local market and the county fair and we would follow him on as he plots and adjusts his, his plan at each kind of volley by the pigs 
And then you might have um, the first little pig having a blog. And there the pig would detail family history, paranoid suspicions, dark figures lurking by his house, that sort of thing. Um, the second pig might tweet, uh, asking advice on sustainable building materials or as it uh, gets heated, you know, to relay breaking news at Little Pig 2, walls of house going inward, sticks flying off roof, health. Uh, the third little pig could have a cooking series uh, where you see on YouTube uh, how he makes parsley turnips and baked apples and stewed wolf surprise. And the point of this is it becomes almost infinite the way that you can uh, create a, a more deep and rich experience of story. Each one of these examples is their own story. So it's satisfying in itself. But put together, it becomes a much greater experience. So it's not the repurposing of a story, you know, just taking a film and then making a DVD of it. It's really the creation of a holistic narrative that's going to unfold across different media. A good marketing example of that uh, is there was a, a visitor campaign or a tourist campaign for Puerto Rico that uh, as one of their elements has a video of the experience of Puerto Rico through the eyes of a surfer. So you, ex you know, you actually just live through the eyes of this person and you can see how if you saw a country or an experience through a lot of different eyes of a lot of different people, how you would have a much fuller view of th that country, or even if it's a product or uh, a brand, and you would have different, understand different nuances, you'd find different places where you related more and less, and so it would become to feel like a very whole and human thing rather than just a jingle or an ad campaign. And then, you know, just to add, one of the things that's sort of inherent to what we're saying is the ability to participate in that. So as Pam is detailing the story, um, there would be multiple ways to then be that eyes. You know, I, I travel to Puerto Rico and I get to add how I see Puerto Rico through my eyes. If I go back to the three little pigs example, each of the media we talked about, um, you know, the, the tweets or the blog, they, they're available for participation by the fan or the consumer. And participation is really one of the key components to transmedia storytelling. It's, it's stepping away from the uh, one-to-many model that Pam talked about that um, has been the sort of traditional marketing uh, perspective and stepping into a, a, a conversation and, and really an invitation to be a part of something uh, bigger that's uh, started by the company but develops part and parcel with the people who uh, dialogue with them. What you're saying is that you take the story and you make it available in more than one medium. Did I get the gist of it? Well, you take the story and you take the main story and you distribute that in whatever's your anchor medium. And then you take other parts of the story. So when Bonnie used the example of the three little pigs, you have the main story that's in a 
in a book. And then you have side stories or side plots that don't change the main story, but they add to the main story so that you learn about the different pigs, you learn about the wolf, you have a better sense of their little town and all of the dynamics so that at the you can just read the main story. You can read, do some of the parts. Each one of those is an, an intact little piece. But if you do it all and you get to the end, you have had this great experience with sort of front-eye views of a lot of people. And at the same time, there have been lots of ways for you to participate. As Bonnie was saying, you know, you could give suggestions to the wolf of how to catch the pigs, or you could give suggestions to the pig who cooks on how to cook the wolf. So you can get people involved and emotionally engaged in the story. Is the goal of transmedia storytelling emotional engagement? Well, that first goal is to be heard at all in this world. Um, you know, you wake up every day to a, a flood of information, you know, your alarm clock, your smartphone, got to check Facebook, scan the newspaper, there's a radio in the car, on the way to, you know, pass a bus with an ad on it, uh, you know, you've got a GPS thing in your car telling you, you know, that you just passed Starbucks, and you get to work and you've had all of this information, and you haven't even, even started the day yet. So a story is a way of organizing information, and it's a way of organizing information that fits our brains. We're biologically wired to translate events into stories to make sense of them. So if you, if you learn a story, you, you remember the story, and anything that's not part of that story falls away. And stories relate to our brains on different levels. The human brain has an instinctual part, the lizard brain, they call it, that, that's very sensory and it takes in information, like Bonnie was saying, we take in information through our senses. We have uh, another layer, the mammalian brain, that's very emotional. And then we have a top brain, the neocortex, that's the thinking brain. That's the one that takes all of the instinctual, emotional, sensory input because everything comes to us in images and sense and taste and smells, and it takes all of that stuff and puts it into a story that the conscious brain can make sense of and understand. So that's why story is important, because it gives your brain a place to hang information. And a story lets your message rise above all of this other din of digital noise so that you can reach the person that you want to reach in a multi-level way. And Bonnie, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. No, no, I was just, you know, to say that a different way, because it's a lot of, you know, sort of neuropsychology there. If you see the day from the perspective of your brain, it's a flood of sounds, tastes, smells, feelings, as in touch feelings. You know, this is rough. This is soft. It's, um, uh, the images that you see, and all of this enters uh, you, the person you, through your senses, and then travels up your, your nerves to the brain as just that flood of, of chaotic 
sensory information. And from there, it becomes an image and many images. But we still have to, to make sense of it. We have to block, uh, create blocks of our world, blocks of our time. So you can say to your husband or wife when you get home, uh, this is what I did at work today. You have to take all of that sensory input and create something that has meaning. And so, and from that meaning, then you're able to make decisions from it. And what the brain does to create meaning is it makes it into a story. And so that beginning, middle, end is a hardwired part of our brain, in a sense. That's, that's where our brain goes. And you can think about all the different ways of how you explain an event to somebody. I, I challenge you to find a way that you explain anything that doesn't have a beginning, middle, and end. And so uh, part of the power of story is that that's how our brains understand being able to take in information. And then like Pam says, because it's born from the senses, to hear a story then engages the senses again. So we become viscerally involved. And if if you talk about, you know, today I walked outside and it was so windy, I, I lost my hat. I can I can viscerally understand that and and I'm engaged. Yeah, a great example to test the way the brain engages viscerally is to imagine that I have a lemon and then I'm going to cut my lemon and it's very juicy and I'm going to squeeze the lemon into a spoon and I'm going to offer it to you to take a sip. Now, does that create imagery in your mind? The entire way. Absolutely. And it makes you salivate. And for me, it makes my nose crinkle up. And, you know, that's, that's what happens in story. And, and as you'll notice, I, I told you a story. I, you know, I had the lemon, and then I did this, and then I did that. So stories have that incredible potential to engage at that level, which is why We've, as humans, been telling stories since before we could read and write. I mean, the first things, the first markings of, of man in the world were stories about the hunt in the Lascaux Caves. That's just how we define our world. It's how we share our world. It's how we reinforce our culture. And especially in a culturally rich community like a lot of the Hispanic communities are, it's so powerful because it's how you connect to your past and make your past relevant to your future. I get the the power of storytelling certainly is, I'm going to go out on a limb and say common knowledge, but I think many people have heard of and maybe familiar with the concept that storytelling is a very powerful way to communicate. Where does the transmedia part come in? Because part of what I hear, what, what I think of when you say different medium options is different market segments. So the marketer in me thinks right away, well, there are going to be people who are going to be in different 
within each one of those different mediums or each one of those different media outlets that you're using. So are you segmenting the market? What, what If you're trying to, as you said earlier, if the goal is to be heard, is it to be heard in as many outlets as possible or by as many people as possible? Would you I'll expand you on that? Sure, I'll give you an example. Um, Jay-Z, the, uh, well, I'm not even going to say what he is because he's many different things. He's a um, motivational speaker. He's a rap star. He's a clothing manufacturer owner. He's a restaurateur. Um, he is a brand. Jay-Z is a brand. And he recently had a, a, an amazing uh, transmedia storytelling uh, experience, uh, which was the release of his book, which was called Decoded. And that released through an alternate reality game. So pages of the book were hidden at different places around the country. And finding those pages was part of the game. Wait a minute, but, Bonnie, just stop and define alternate reality game. An alternate reality game is um, a game that takes place in the real world. And so it's the um, um, it's a game that's going to take place in a physical reality based on a story world. Is that the best definition, Pam? Yeah, I think it's think of it as a blending of reality. So it's kind of like if you painted the Monopoly board out on the street, you know, and then you got messages on your cell phone about which square to run to. So it's a blending of different technologies and different environments. Is that kind of like the amazing race on television? Kind of, yeah. And so Anyway, go ahead, Bonnie. I just didn't know how how many people would be familiar with that term. Yeah, that's good. Um and so the um the pages of the book were hidden in places that were part of the story of Jay-Z, part of the story of the book. So some of the pages, one page, for example, was painted on the bottom of a pool in Miami of his favorite hotel. Another was printed on the plates at one of his restaurants. Another was wrapped on a car that was um, an, an 80s Cadillac that was parked in front of a graffiti mural of Ron DMC, who's one of his biggest influences, and that was in Brooklyn, I think. And so as uh, game players went around the world to try and find, it was mostly the U.S., I think, to try and find the pages, not only were they um, playing a game, but they were literally physically stepping into the story world of Jay-Z and the experience of Jay-Z. So they were ordering his favorite item off the menu at his restaurant. They were going to his old neighborhood in Brooklyn. So they were walking through his story in a real and engaged way. Now, what's interesting about that is there are many people who came to the decoded book who aren't going to be listening to Jay-Z's rap music, but they've maybe seen him on Oprah's Mastermind and they love what he has to say as a motivational speaker. Um, many people are going to access him because they walk into a clothing store and they're taken by the clothes. So it's not a point. It, it, the, there's a little something about transmedia storytelling that not only, as you say, casts a wider net 
for a company because now you can expand yourself into different entry points for very different consumers. But you can all, because you're speaking their language, you're, you know, giving a book to people who'd be more interested in a book and they're not going to turn on a rap song. At the same time, you're kind of redefining how you look at ROI in a sense, because it's not so much did the book itself make tons of money, but how many added people to his base exist now so that the next time he rolls out his next product, he's now expanded his customer base and, ha- and can augment upon that endlessly. Can you transfer that into, say, a, the introduction of a new product or service in the market, say branding something new, as opposed to the case study that you just shared with us, which was someone who already had a very broad reputation, and he was just building on that, if I understand correctly. What, if any, application does the transmedia storytelling have when you are branding something for the first time? It's almost better if you're branding something for the first time because you're going to start from what is the absolute core of what your story is. So a lot of times companies are already out there and then if they want to do a transmedia storytelling strategy, they have to backtrack and say, wait a minute, what's our story? If you're starting a company from startup, then you know what that uh, that genesis for the the start of that company is. So you know what the story is. All companies are started with a story, whether they know it or not. And so if you're at ground zero, you're very close to that story. So from there, it's really a very cohesive, creative act of branding and marketing to um, consider how you're going to tell that story and all of the means that are available to you to tell it. So if you're starting a company, you should know to whom it is that you're wanting to start the company for. And so that will dictate, in a sense, the different places that you also want to put the story. Now, what's amazing about it is that there's the participatory element of transmedia storytelling. So as you begin to get people engaging with your story, then you might find, oh, you know what? there's actually something a little bit more relevant to our customers than what we're doing right now. And if you're a responsive company and you are fluid enough, then you can actually continue to to change and evolve with your customer. And that's really a way to ensure longevity, not only startup, but longevity. Yeah, and an an example of, I don't know if you're going to consider this to be a a startup, but but Bonnie can tell um, the story of of Tom's Shoes, which is a startup, but there was a bank that went bankrupt, the Doral Bank, and they came in with a new management and redefined their purpose. So they, they, they changed themselves from just a mortgage bank to a bank where the community comes first. So that was... That was their story, putting the community first. And so instead of just, you know, being having really nice, uh, you know, check, uh, what do you call 
what do you call those? Uh, the people at the windows in a bank or, or really ni- nice bank managers. They undertook a lot of different activities to support their story. So they paid for mammograms for women who couldn't afford them. They hosted social and cultural events at the local museum. They educated the community about reforestation. So they did all of these things as part of their story about putting the community first. After one year, their customer base had grown by 12% because in their public opinion of their company had improved by 100% because people were perceiving them as a peer in their community where, where they were giving value before they were being sold. So and what, was the, what was the transmedia storytelling aspect? That they were communicating through different media. Now, remember that media can mean anything that's mediated communication. So whether or not it's a television ad or whether you're sending out books or whether you're providing services, those are all ways of communicating that are through different media. In that case, they were using very traditional media. They weren't making video games and they weren't you know, ha- making movies and all of that or videos. They were communicating through very simple means, uh, notifying people of this event, connecting with them in, in that way. But um, it just means using all of these parts to flesh out a story. Is transmedia storytelling a new concept or is this something that has been around for a long time and maybe just got a new label? I think transmedia has been around um, for as long as there's been two ways of connecting with someone. The difference is, as I was saying earlier, is this holistic view. How do we communicate coherently across a lot of ways rather than just sending out one message everywhere we turn? And how do we build something that we can let unfold so it engages people along a path over a story arc rather than bam, all at once and you're done? Is there any kind of measurement follow-up that has been done or that is being done to gauge the audience's response to this method of connecting with them? Is I think that <clears throat> that what they're seeing is well. First of all, it's very hard to break down. We're, we're very used to one-to-one uh, ROI metrics. You know, I put in this ad, I get so many clicks. And if you're you're cultivating relationships with people in this new environment, then you have to figure out a new way of thinking about what it is you're accomplishing with all of these things so you have a better idea of what to measure. Because if you've built a relationship with your community like like Pampers done has done with a Facebook page of um, the Small Miracles, uh, Pequeños Milagros page, if you build a relationship with people where they can post pictures of their children, where you're really communicating them on that very personal level, but you're not selling them anything, but they then go to the grocery store and buy Pampers you're not going to know that that comes from the Facebook page, but it's the relationship that facilitated that purchase. So you have to rethink the way you're measuring the return. 
I mean, and I think that's what Bonnie used the example of Jay-Z. And and so Jay-Z, his book might not have sold, but now people who'd never heard of his music may buy his music. So you're really expanding a platform. But what you do see is that the brands have much longer shelf life because it's built on a relationship rather than on a slogan. Is there a particular market segment that is more likely to embrace this style of communicating? No, I think what's what varies with the market is the tool that you choose to distribute it. Everyone loves a story, right? You engage everyone. I mean, that's the cool thing about stories is that stories aren't, you know, there's a big difference, for example, especially when you're, when you're breaking into market segments, uh, between a stereotype and an archetype. And it's easy to go to stereotypes when you're trying to define a target market. But if you if you go with a story, then you're elevating that to something that's more of an archetype where you're engaging people in their emotion and you're talking about some very basic universal themes that engage people and bring them together without having those specific, where you're not defining it for them, where you're letting them bring their definition and you're letting them contribute along the way. You know, there's an example to that. So if you think about the movie Rocky, right? Um, there's Rocky. We see him in the middle of the movie. He's uh, training, and, and we see him coming into his own. And so we see him as a champion. But then when he gets to the last fight, he's being pummeled. And it looks like he's going to lose. But we've already seen him as a champion. And so we're rooting for Rocky. And then when Rocky wins... We're as involved as Rocky in that win. Now, that whole little bit can be reduced to one thing, one word, which is the story of the underdog. And so what Pam is saying about elevating up to archetype or to uh, a universal truth or universal message is every one of us has been in a moment where we have been the underdog. So we connect on that level to something that's a universal theme, not just connecting to the movie Rocky. And one way that that has been played out, uh, this is an advocacy campaign in the state of California, I think it was in uh, 2009, uh, there was a, a move to make it illegal to sell raw milk. And it was uh, funded in large part by the large commercial dairies um, that homogenize and pasteurize their milk. And there are only two companies in uh, California that produce raw milk. And they're two very small family-owned companies. And what they did was brilliant because in all of their messaging from hangers on their milk cartons to... Um, pamphlets and speakers and entertainers at farmers markets to their website would say, you know what, we're the underdog. We're the small companies. We don't have the money to go against uh, these big commercial companies. And, um, but we believe in what we are. And to illustrate that, they had a couple of children who really became sort of uh, part of the voice of that that had talked about how they had had terrible allergies before drinking raw milk and how they had felt sick before their mom brought them raw milk. And so what happened was there was this great outpouring of support for them. 
And part of it is because everybody can connect to that underdog story. And when it came time for it to go to court, people flooded the courts. And normally those kind of things, you know, there's all kinds of lawsuits for companies and and they kind of come and go and nobody sees. But this was very, very big and public and publicly attended. Now, um, you, you know, whatever side you're on, it doesn't matter whether you're for raw milk or not or don't care. You can see the raw milk story a little differently because you're then connecting to that universal truth. And so one of the parts of story is that it helps people to engage at something that's much bigger than actual product. So they're engaging in this universal truth, not necessarily the product itself. And that's what you want. That's what it is of uh, engaging in story as opposed to that's what it's, it is for a longer shelf life. If I engage in the story of the company and I'm behind what the company is doing, I'm not beholden to an actual product itself. For our listeners who are looking at this, or listening to this conversation and thinking to themselves, okay, so I'm interested and I want to embrace this concept, how do they take this and apply it to their company, to what they're doing in their business? Well, I think we break down the process like this, and, um, and Bonnie, you want to elaborate in a minute, but, you know, first, it's not about the tools. It's about an authentic story. And as Bonnie was saying, every business starts with a story. It starts with this passionate idea of somebody who was willing to get up at the crack of dawn and work like the Dickens to build a business. So, and there's always a reason. We ask our people to write the story, come a story of their company, and then we ask them to write the story about why they chose that story. Because that really gets after that level of why that's important. So we work with companies through the story opening process that we developed to identify this story. Then you match that story to your goals and your audience, and then you develop a media strategy. So it's, you really start, it's really all about the story. How you distribute it is a, is a decision that if it does you can't get that as wrong as you can get the story wrong. You know, if you, if you don't have an honest story and you, you haven't got that sort of coherence in the business, then, then it doesn't really matter what media you choose. It's not going to work. Bonnie, I know you want to add to that. Well, just a, a concrete example, um, my attorney came and, and said he wanted to build his practice, and I said, so, okay, tell me about it. And he talked for a while about these kind of contracts he can draw up and these kind of documents and this kind of court role and that sort of thing. And um, it was a snooze. And, you know, I have no idea what he was even saying. I have no idea how that's relevant to anybody, really. It's, it's, it was so far out in legalese. So, like Pam said, the next step is really, I said, so now you've told me what you do. Tell me what you feel about your company. And he thought for a minute and he kind of fidgeted and said, well, this may sound silly, but I actually picture myself as a family doctor that specializes in preventative medicine. 
And he said he sees himself as that person that can go with an individual through all the stages of their life, from starting their own company to preparing wills and family trusts. And then he wants these individuals to come on with him when their legal life is a healthy one so they don't come to them to him when their legal life is sick like when they're being sued or they're in a bind and I was like that's it that's the story that's what I can hold on to it's not the legal stuff of the first 40 minutes of talking it's really that so one of the other techniques that we use is really go back to that initial impulse that generated the idea of your business and you can even, you know, simply do that by closing your eyes and in your imagination, really see yourself going back to that moment of first impulse. Feel the feeling. Is there an image there? Did you have an image of, of what your business will look like in that moment? How would you name it? And then you can go forward in time, seeing each time that that impulse has helped to shape the business. If you write down what you see and read it back out loud to yourself, you'll be able to, to begin to see patterns and things that have emerged for you. And that becomes your story. The other great thing about doing that work in a company is that it's, it's often surprising when you get people to sit down and be honest, the different views that, that people have of a business or the different ways they conceive of the story. And that allows you to bring people together so that they're focused and all marching in the same direction because misunderstandings about the fundamental company pur purpose really spend a lot of energy uselessly. So finding the story is another way of highlighting the the need for focus, the ability to bring people together. And so you have a much more coherent and collaborative team at the end of the day, as well as a much more coherent marketing strategy. One of the reasons Pam and I are so passionate about our Finding Your Company Story workshops is because, as she says, it really creates a much more cohesive and collaborative in-house team. And we really see that Every employee of the company is their own marketing vehicle because what they write on Facebook, what they post in their private posts, what they say at cocktail parties, these are all messages about their company. And many companies do take it for granted, the impression that the employees have of that company. Um, but just like each company has a story, employees have their own story of that company. And it's, it's important for companies to make sure that these are aligned. And an example of what's great when they do align, we actually had a student once who was so excited about the company he worked for, which was this large telecom company. Then he started his own blog just to write about the really interesting things they were doing. And in the blog, there were also pictures of his kids, his family. And we asked him about that. And he said, oh, well, actually, this blog is about everything important in my life. And that's what you really are looking for um, with your in-house team, is to have people who have the same vision for the company as the company itself, so much that they're not only excited about it, but it really becomes infused in their life in a, in a really positive way. Now, in the same way that this cohesiveness can lead to telling a wonderful story and engaging a broader audience and even generating loyalty, if I'm hearing your description correctly. I also hear the potential for a lot of problems 
for companies that don't have a cohesive marketing message or that have, let's call them challenges internally, maybe unhappy employees, maybe an uneven policies, etc. How do you go about deciding if you're among our listeners and you're thinking, well, is this right for me? Is this right for my company? How do you go about deciding whether this is a step in the right direction for you and for your company? Is there some sort of a questionnaire or is there a process that you can go through to help you figure that out? I don't know if if there's a questionnaire or process. I guess I would first say that if someone thinks something's not working right, then not doing anything isn't a very good solution. From our perspective, going, you know, from our perspective, they should just call us. No, <laughs> but from our perspective, one of the things about finding the story or at least going back and finding what your, I always think of a story as kind of a mission statement with, you know, the emotional arc. So it isn't like we're just, you know, be all you can be, but it's like why you were there and why you're going to get someplace else. And so I think if people can reflect on that to get back to that, then they can see where they have inconsistencies. The trouble is it's very hard to shift your perspective by yourself. And that's why, you know, that's why people do what we do. That's why people sometimes go to therapists or life coaches or um, other kinds of consultants because they bring in a different set of eyes. You know, changing how you see is, is really the key to innovation and creativity. Uh, you know, to haul out another quote from an old dead guy, um, Leonardo da Vinci, someone once asked him, how do you how do you draw so well? And he said the secret isn't drawing. The secret is learning how to see. So essentially, it's what you're drawing, not it's being able to see it, not can you with a with your hand craft it. So there's a lot of different ways for people to try and shift their vision. That's probably the most critical part of that whole process that you're describing. Are there companies that just don't have a story that you can tell, either that they don't have a story or that the story they have just isn't right for public consumption? Oh, absolutely. There's more than you'd more than you'd like. I mean, let me just give you an example of somebody who missed a huge opportunity to have a story. Matter of fact, we have two. I'll tell the Downey one, Bonnie, and then you could tell Levi's. Um, and just recently, Downey had a big promotion where they hired a comic and they put him in a window in the New York Macy's. Right. And so I guess you were supposed to just, you know, like watch this guy sleep in a window for a week because Downey was so special on the sheets. So they they had him there and they had a live video cam and, you know, they had, you know, some scientists come in and explain to him why Downey was swell. And once you saw that there was this comedian in a window and he wasn't actually telling jokes, he was just, you know, hanging out in the window on a bed. So what? I mean, it's a gimmick. So what? You're done. But Downey and Macy's in the bedding, there was a huge story there that could be that could have been worked. You know, 
Downey doesn't just make nice smelling sheets. Downey could have been the the way to have you know, a great place to sleep. And they could have linked that to people who don't have great places to sleep. And what can we do about people who don't? And how do you expand that Downey experience to where using Downey is doing, is letting you act in a, for your community or for children or for something so that's larger than yourself. We all ache to be part of something larger. We all ache to matter. So that was an opportunity where that Downey just gave away, spent all that money, you know, for, for what? And, and Bonnie's got it, can tell you a great example about Levi's who I think made a similar error. So Levi's had the go forth and work campaign. And, um, it was really kind of couched in this whole visual style of the Great Depression, uh, where it shows uh, people dressed up in Levi's but looking really cool and gritty in that sort of uh, Steinbeck, sweaty, shirtless kind of way, right? Yeah, like and, poverty is so cool. <laughs> and that's part of the big miss, is they featured um, Braddock, Pennsylvania, as part of this story and this campaign and that they were there helping Braddock to rebuild and it was the story of Braddock but it's not we we actually feel very strongly in fact that you know psychology research shows that emotions are contagious and the depression was a really really bad time statistically with all the the numbers I can tell you it was far far worse than what we're going through today. And rather than um, highlighting the incredible resilience and the ability to reinvent and renew themselves that Americans have, they were sort of uh, spreading depression in this campaign. And they, um, it, coming up, you know, having the depression as the, as the background and then making it look artsy felt more like a mockery than uh, something that celebrates the human potential. So this is a place where <clears throat> being too hip, too cool uh, around an actual real-life story, which was their attempt to move into transmedia storytelling, for people who are really, truly hurting from the still steel mill closing, um, but who are also trying to raise themselves up, was just really... Um, in bad taste, yeah. Well, and and they when they came to town, instead of using that money to train people who had lost jobs, they paid them day rates as actors and then left town again. So they didn't contribute anything of a lasting value. Where they could have made had a great story, Levi's, you know, go forth and work, helping people to go forth and work. Instead of just having this artificial, you know, gritty poverty thing and then leaving town again. So to me, that's another, I mean, missed opportunity that isn't a secret because of the social web. This makes me think of what you said at the beginning of our conversation. You, you talked about the importance of authenticity. So if you don't have an authentic story to tell, 
then maybe you shouldn't be out there. <laughs> yeah, you shouldn't be telling it. That's exactly right. But, you know, there's very few um, people, like my attorney, for example, who came and said, you know, I've got this uh, law firm and, and this is our practice. We don't have a story. Well, actually, they do. And lots of them so, do. Many people, you know, will, will say to us, oh, we're just a, a construction company. We don't have a story. I, I've yet to meet a company that doesn't have a story. It's really about going back to that, uh, the passion of its first mission and finding it. So how do you find the story of the brand or the company? Is there some secret method <laughs> We do have our story openings method, and it's a um, model that we use when we go into a company and help them find their story. But I would say for uh, all of your listeners here, the very first step is to go back and to, to reconnect with that initial passion. And like I'd said about you know closing your eyes and going back to that moment, um, that's a really powerful exercise to do to start to get back to unearthing uh, the roots of what allowed your business to grow. If, for those of our listeners who are interested in pursuing this, they go through that exercise that you've just described and they say, okay, well, I think there's, there's something there. I've discovered, sort of like your attorney did, what it is that I want to do vis-a-vis potential customers and customers. How do they take that to the next level? Do they need to have professional consultants help them? Is this something that's available to mom and pops as well, of course, as the big companies? How does that work in terms of when do you know your need and what is the access financially? What's the entry point, if you will? Well, the nice thing about social media is that you can do a lot of advertising for free. Um, we're we're working with a, a company um, with a woman who is starting some not gourmet or organic dog treats, but she's just one woman in her kitchen, and we're you know we're doing this because we love this woman. But she could do this herself. And so we sent her home to find her story and we talked to her. And the reason that she's inspired to make organic dog treats is because she has an Australian shepherd that she saved from being um, put down at birth because he was the kind that was all white and apparently um, they're often blind and deaf. And so she saved him, couldn't stand to have him put down. His, so his name is Lucky. And in fact, Lucky isn't blind or deaf. So that's Lucky is especially lucky. But so she she's trying to build this story around, which I think is very powerful, around the idea of a lucky dog, caring for a lucky dog, saving a lucky dog. Is your dog a lucky dog? And so we're helping her then take that story and decide which avenues make sense for her to distribute that story. And because she's a mom in her kitchen, it's going to be very simple things that are available to all of us, a blog, Twitter, YouTube videos, but it's about spreading that story in ways that add value. So she's not just going to send out a lot of tweets about buy my dog treats. It's going to be, these are ingredients that 
really aren't good for your dogs. And watch my YouTube video to see how to make homemade dog food and, you know, and, or how to trim your dog's nails or, you know, all of those kinds of things that pet owners want to know in the context of what she cares about. Cause her story is really about caring for her animals. What is the entry point in terms of how do they know that they need someone to help them and what is the starting point in terms of a budget? What kind of resources are involved if they want to take this transmedia storytelling to their business? Well, Bonnie, do you want to answer well, that? Well, I would say that um, as Pam was talking about earlier, uh, the reason why you hire consultants or you hire coaches and things like this is because they really do come at a different perspective. Um, they're not uh, a part of the water you're swimming in, so they're able to step outside of that fishbowl and look and see everything from a different vantage point. So I think it's, it's often very, very helpful to have uh, consultants come in but if you're a very small, you know, startup company, the exercise we gave at the beginning um, or earlier in this podcast is is a great way to get started. And, you know, have each of your employees or other founding partners do the same and let them um, and then talk about what each of you you see, because you may find that each of you has a different impulse uh, in starting the company, which aren't at odds, but are actually additive and um, see what emerges for you. Yeah, and, and you don't, I mean, there are ways of, of getting help without hiring people to come into your business. I mean, we do a series of, of webinars explaining this kind of thing with some worksheets and stuff. We also do a day-long workshop that's just, you know, open to the public for, you know, just a, the price of a ticket. So it isn't all about expensive bring people in corporate workshop kinds of things. There's different ways of finding people and connecting with people at different price points. How can our audience get more information about storytelling and transmedia storytelling? Come to our website. It's www.athinklab.com. Um, don't forget the A. So it's athinklab.com. Uh, there's a, a lot of material on there, including um, the agendas for the workshops that we give of finding your company story and also transmedia storytelling for branding and, and advocacy. Um, if you are interested in, in taking that to a step further of having us come into your company, either as a, teaching these workshops or coming in as consultants to pull out the story uh, with you by talking to your employees, email us. Yeah, and if you just have questions, email us. You know, Absolutely. What three tips would you share with our listeners that can help them, something that they can take back to their work environment, to their life, and apply three things or three tips that you can share that they can sort of distill all of the ideas that you've shared with us today. Okay, well, let me start with one, Bonnie, and then you can think up one. One is that in this new environment, people want to connect 
not with a brand, not with a company. They want to connect with a human at the other end. And that's why a story humanizes a business. It allows people to connect. And there's nothing more engaging than connecting with another person. I would also say um, part to that engagement is make sure that it really truly is participatory. So it's one thing for me to get on the phone with somebody and connect to an actual human and tell them that um, this is going wrong with uh, one of my products. It's another to actually connect with someone and have them hear that and say, I can help that. So, um, you know, that's, you know, an example of customer service, but you have to take it to every level of your organization. If you have people who are wanting to, uh, for example, there have been some companies that have been very reticent to people who are simply fans of the company or fans of a product that make their own commercials for the company and post them on YouTube. And, and there have been, you know, various uh, moves to get those taken off from time to time. We think the companies that embrace that, that know that that participation goes all the way up in a, a myriad of ways, are really the companies that feel um, that feel human. That it's not just about calling a phone for customer service, but it's about we really are in this dialogue and co-creating together, and that's much more accessible. I guess the last tip I would say is. Try not to get too locked into thinking about return on investment as a one-to-one, you know, one-click, one-dollar kind of thing, uh, that the approach needs to be much more holistic. And in this environment with social media, you can do it very inexpensively and you can run a lot of experiments without much cost. To summarize, be aware that a story humanizes the business so use the story to engage the audience. Two, make sure that it's participatory. And three, don't focus so much on the ROI, just be aware that it's a holistic experience. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Bonnie and Pam, for joining us from Los Angeles in San Francisco, California. Thank it's our you, pleasure. Elena. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you very much. And to our audience, thank you for listening to Bonnie Buckner, M.A., and Pamela Rutledge, M.B.A., Ph.D., the co-founders of A Think Lab, who discussed transmedia storytelling. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicNPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicNPR.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.